So we are finishing up. Uh, this is our second to last message in the book of Judges. Uh, today we'll be looking at four chapters, 13, 14, 15, and 16, through the lens of this man, Samson. So I encourage you to turn there if you have a Bible. If you have an app, open it up there. Obviously, we're not going to be able to work through every single verse of this section, uh, but we are going to get into it. This uh, series has been outstanding. The reality is we're taking bigger chunks of Scripture. If you have not had an opportunity to really study this book, I think you should. Um, and you can go to the Commons after this and pick up this book, which will help you which is Tim Keller's Study Judges for You. We are going to be doing a four-week series through the title All of Life's All for Jesus after um, this series on Judges, so you'll still be able to study a book of the Bible during those four weeks, and I really encourage you to do so. So here's the reality of the book of Judges um, we've been looking at. This is a weird book. It really is. Can I get an amen to that if you've looked at it? I mean, this, this book is weird. It's much like, it, when I read this book, I think this is like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Now, tons of people in here don't know who Quentin Tarantino is. He does weird movies that are really dark and horrific, and yet you know he has a message through it, but you're trying to wade through all of this darkness and this horror and the weirdness and go, what exactly is he trying to say? That's what Judges feels like to me. And if you don't know who Quentin Tarantino is, my advice you would be just think about the weirdest, darkest, confusing movie. And, and I'm, what I'm saying to you is, and I am a pastor, this book is like that. It's just weird. So then the question is, why in the world did we choose to study this book? The first answer is really simple. It's in the Bible. Redemption Church believes that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, not just for Christians, but we believe that the God of the universe has given us the Bible and its true truth, that it's the true story of the whole world, that this message of the book of Judges, as is all of the Bible, is as relevant to you who are sitting in the room that don't believe this stuff as it is to those of us who do believe it. And we want to submit ourselves uh, to the scriptures as a church. Secondly, it's unbelievably applicable both to culture, to us as a church, and to you and I as individuals. This book is filled with tension, and if you were living in the time of the judges, there would be a tremendous amount of anxiety. A study was just brought to my attention this week that there was a researcher doing study on anxiety, specifically in the United States of America, and they said that the anxiety levels of an average person today in the United States of America is the equivalent of those men who had been told they were going into World War II just after getting the news and all the way lead up into World War II. Now, you can look at that and go, studies like that are ridiculous, but it says something. Anxiety levels are at a high in the United States and worldwide, as well as in the church. We're living in weird times. That's just true. I don't care who you are, that is just true. This book speaks because it's coming out of weird times. It also speaks to us as the church because this book was written to the people of God, the nation of Israel. We are the people of God, the church. And what's crazy about this whole entire book is all of these catastrophic things are happening at the hands of the people of God. 
We'll get more into that next week. And then it really applies to us as individuals at multiple levels, um, even not the least of these being what we talked about when it comes to anxiety. These two statements in the book of Judges are very important and apparent. There's no king in Israel, so there was no king at the time. That's why Judges got developed, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the last verse of the book of Judges. No king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, it's really important for us to understand who Israel was intended to be by God's design. God formed this nation out of nothing. God formed Israel out of nothing so that they would be a light to all of the rest of the world that God made, and that through their following of the one true God, who the Bible calls Yahweh in the Old Testament, through the following of Yahweh, the one true God, they would be able to say to the world, this is what life is intended to be. That through their words, but mainly their actions, they would be able to say, this is the way to a world that had gone wayward. They would be able to say, this is the truth to a world that was living in falsehood, that they would be able to say, this is life to a world that was living in death. There's a guy named Patrick Miller who wrote a, a great book on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments and the law were given that Israel would live that kind of life and create a good neighborhood. Patrick Miller says this, the Ten Commandments is the culture, or if you want to use the word he uses, ethos, which is a big word, the Ten Commandments is the culture ethos of the good neighborhood. It's a statement that the law was created, that Israel would live in God's ways and create a good neighborhood that all of the other bad neighborhoods would be able to look at and go, look at goodness when we're living in the midst of horror. Now, the reality of the book of Judges is it says that actually Israel has taken on all of the characteristics of the bad neighborhood and are living into them and sadly think they're normal. I would submit to you now, and we'll get through this, is that in the end, uh, we may not be in that different of a place. This statement of there is no king in Israel, I believe has two meanings, is that one, Israel has abandoned God. It's about disobedience. And therefore, they also have no king. But even if they had a king, he would be disobedient, as most of these judges have been as well. So they literally didn't have a king, but it was all in disarray because they had not submitted their, themselves to God. So we're going to see much of ourselves in the nation of Israel. Now, today is all about Samson. When I say Samson, you know the Bible at all, what do you think of? Okay, I heard hair, but then I heard a lot of, what does his hair represent? Strength, strong Samson. So today, as we look through these four chapters, strength is going to be the theme, and we're going to look at the soil of strength, the source of strength, and then the means to access the strength. The soil that strength comes out of, the source of that strength, and then the means to access that strength. The soil of strength. What does strength grow out of? Here's the reality. God's prefacing of exceptional work, God's prefacing of strength and power is almost always out of or in the midst of extreme difficulties. 
Derek Kidner says that in his commentary on Genesis. God's way of prefacing exceptional work is with exceptional difficulties. Now, if you didn't know this, the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. And if you didn't know it, I'm going to make sure you know it because I'm a huge Denver Bronco fan. But if you watched the Denver Broncos at all this year, which I am happy to say I watched every second of every game, if you watched them this year, you realize there was extraordinary difficulty in the midst of this. Now, they came out with an exceptional win, the Lombardi Trophy and the Super Bowl, but I saw an image on Facebook the other day that said, watching the Denver Broncos is like, and it had this picture of this guy holding up a pillow and looking at the TV like this, and it said it's like watching the scariest movie you've ever watched. Like, you don't know what's around the corner, and that is so true, and the reason for that is their quarterback. Now, I love Peyton Manning, love him. He's one of the greatest of all time. But truth be told, that guy encountered extraordinary difficulty in the last couple years. He had a bad foot. He was throwing off one foot. He had no strength in his body. He could barely throw. He had an amazing mind. But their quarterback was basically an invalid, truth be told. Extraordinary difficulty. And out of extraordinary difficulty came exceptional work, the Lombardi Trophy. Now, here's what I want you to see. That is all over the Bible. And it's all over these four chapters. The focus of these four chapters is Samson. The author clearly tells the story of Samson to put up a mirror to Israel to say, you are Samson. And we're going to see why in a minute. You are Samson. Now, through these four chapters, we see, like the Denver Broncos, that the soil of strength is difficulty. The soil of strength is disobedience. The soil of strength is poverty. So let's begin to look. This section starts in 13 verse 1 and says this, and the people of Israel again, hear that word, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Oh, that's all, just 40 years. You, you got to slow down when you read the Bible long enough to go 40 years and the people of Israel. Now, if you're Israel reading this, you're going, the people of Israel, which is the people of God, again did what was evil. So if this was like us, we'd be going, again, the church does what's evil in God's sight. The people of God, again, do, do what is evil in God's sight. The soil of God's strength appearing is Israel's disobedience. So one of the things we see from these four chapters when we learn about the soil in which God's strength emerges is in the midst of disobedience. Again, the nation of Israel was meant to display God's righteousness and God's justice. The nation of Israel was reciting to themselves the Shema multiple times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is no other gods. Love the Lord your God with everything you have with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. They were meant to embody the good neighborhood. It could be said of the way God designed Israel to live is that it would be able to be, and like a good neighbor, Israel is there. That was the intention, right? The good neighborhood. But the reality is they've taken on all of the ethics, all of the views of Canaan, and in the end, there's been a Canaanization of Israel when there was meant to be an Israelization of Canaan. God created a nation that it would, literally, that ethic would take over the world, but in the end, the ethics and the viewpoints of the Canaanites 
infected the Israelites. So the soil of God's strength is disobedience. Here's the next thing we learn about the soil of God's strength. It comes out of the barren places. Verse 2, there was a certain man of Zerah in the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Now, what does barrenness mean? The place where nothing grows. Now, let's humanize it for a minute. This was a woman whom the culture looked down upon, but now a woman who's had no children, which means she's basically worthless in this culture. So she's experiencing unbelievable displacement, unbelievable isolation, unbelievable loneliness, likely depressed because she's barren. Now, don't forget the word barren, the place where nothing grows. The angel of the Lord appears to the woman and says, behold, you're barren and have borne no children. Now, she's got to be going, really? Like, thanks, Einstein. I'm barren and have no children. Or she felt probably even more than that, because there you can kind of smirk with that. Like, this was a dagger being placed. But God wanted her to know, and he clearly wants all of us to know, the soil of his strength, the disobedience of Israel, and the barrenness, the place where nothing grows... And even in the place of depression. Then you see you're going to have a child. And the child that she is going to bear to deliver Israel. To begin to hopefully deliver Israel by pushing back the Philistines. Is a man named Samson. Now when we think of Samson. I believe this in all of my heart. That our children's curriculums and our children's books have done us a disservice. Because how is Samson portrayed most of the time. You guys said it, strong Samson. So if we think strong, that in the end means huge, muscle-bound. The reality is he was a very normal man. Nowhere in the passage does it say he was a massive man, right? Which it could have because it said Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? It could have said Samson was an enormous man. It didn't say that. He displayed his strength. Don't get lost in this. He's a very normal man. So God works in the midst of disobedience, is the soil of his strength, in the midst of barrenness is the soil of strength, and in everyday places with everyday people. Just let that sink for a minute. In everyday places with everyday people, whom, by the way, are wickedly sinful. Fort, verse 14 starts, and Samson is telling his parents he wants to go take a woman for himself of Philistine. And his parents go, well, couldn't you take a woman for yourself of our people, the people of God? And his statement is, no, give her to me, for she is right in my eyes. That's literally the language that he uses, which is the same language at the end of the book that everyone did what was right in their own eyes to define debauchery, the nature of sinfulness, the catastrophic results that this culture is experiencing. Samson, the one whom God is raising up, is natural, but he's also, in shorthand terms, an absolute mess. He's an absolute mess. So God works in the midst of our disobedience, in the places of no growth, in everyday places, with everyday people who are also sinful people. He also works in the midst of dangerous places. It's a point of a lion that's running at Samson, a place through these four chapters, two different women are seeking to trap him and hand him over to the Philistines. 3,000 men of his own people come to bind him and to hand him over to the Philistine. A thousand men come to kill him. 
a dangerous situation of Samson about to die of thirst or to pass out because he's so famished in which the Philistinians would come upon him and then kill him. He's about to die of either thirst or die at the hand of these people because he's so famished. And then at the end, there is also a mocking place. So look at this. God, the soil of God's strength emerging is in disobedient places, places of no growth, in natural, everyday, sinful people, in dangerous places, and in places where you are mocked and God is mocked. That's at the very end, in chapter 16, when these people are mocking Samson. All of a sudden, God's strength gets put on display. Here's the reality. We sang a song just now, Lord, I Need You, that has a line in it that says, where grace is found, there you are. God is love. God is grace. Now hear this, where grace is found, there you are. Grace... This is a quote that I love. Grace is like water. It runs downhill and it pools up in the lowest places. The soil in which God's strength emerges are the places you and I would never think of. But here's the reality. It will pool up in low places of the lowly of heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It'll pool up in communities who know they need God. It'll pool up in cultures that know they need God. Here's the problem. Our culture has come up to this point for a hundred years of saying we don't need God and it has infected each one of us and it's infected the church. The first step to ever getting healing in anything is acknowledging, admitting, recognizing, seeing that there's a problem. Folks, hear me on this. The Bible is very clear in the book of Hebrews that sin is deceitful. It will twist you and make you think you're okay, make us think we are okay when in fact we are not. We have to look, ask God for eyes to see that we could see our poverty and not be so scared of it. The reality is our culture, the American culture, has told us that being insecure, being uncomfortable, lacking safety, being poor is awful. When in reality, that's the soil in which God's strength emerges and we need to be there. God works in the midst of poverty. He works in the midst of sin. He works in the midst of our sin. He works in the midst of the sin that's done to us in the sin that's all around us. We can't run from discomfort. We can't run from poverty. We've got to bring all of those to God for that's the soil in which God's strength emerges and where God moves in and from. When we forget this, horrific things come upon our societies, will come upon our church, have come upon our church, will come upon you and have come upon you. The soil in which God's strength emerges is weakness. Now, what's the source of the strength? What's the source of the strength that we see in Samson? It is overwhelmingly clear that Samson's strength is not his own. That Samson's strength is the strength of God. One of my favorite stories of all time is a story of a former elder in this church who was telling me a story about his brother. Now, this is one of those things like, what did you just say? So there's a guy. That's the bottom line. 
True story, there's a guy who's quite wealthy. He's driving on the road to where his 10 to 12-year-old, I can't remember the exact age, but it was right about that age, son in the back seat says, Dad? He listens, may have taken four dads. I'm a dad, so I know when my kids yell at me, it may take four dads. But finally he hears me, he says, Dad, are we rich? And his dad sits there at the moment and he goes, this is the teaching opportunity. So he pulls over the car, puts the car in park, looks over his shoulder and he goes, son, what'd you say? Son said, dad, are we rich? And his dad looked his son in the eyes and he said, son, I'm rich, you're not. Don't be mistaken, son, you're not rich. The benefits you receive are because I'm rich. I bought our house, I buy your food. It's my wealth that provides your benefit. Now hear me, we would do ourselves a massive disservice to say the strength of Samson. If you read these four chapters, it is ridiculously, ridiculously apparent that this is God's strength. In chapter 13, who moves first? The Lord moves Israel in to Philistine fundamentally, gives them into the hand of the Philistinians fundamentally because of their evil. Then who moves? God moves to allow a barren woman to conceive. In chapter 14, verse 6, this moment where this lion, remember the dangerous moment, comes upon Samson. This reminds me of a scene early in my marriage with my wife and Tim and Sarah who are sitting in the front row. We went up to Prescott uh, to Tim's parents' cabin, house that's on this golf course, and we decided to walk. We're walking Tim and Sarah's dogs um, at the moment, and we're walking the dogs. It's Tim, Sarah, Haley, and myself. So the men are on the edges to protect um, the wives from anything. And out of the woods comes a ravenous wolf. And it's barking like a dog. Now it was barking like, and it was, I am not kidding. This thing was going like Mach 4, fast. (laughs) It's running at us barking. And I'm like, there's a wolf. And it was barking like a dog because it was a dog, okay? (laughs) So, but I see a wolf coming. And literally the first thought in my head is, Run for your lives. So I turn and I just run. And I see this little golf house that's set up there as a weather house to sit in if it's golfing and it's raining. And I run to the other side of it. And then I peer out the corner and I'm like, everybody's scattered. Well, when I look, the three of them are still standing there, the two wives and Tim. This dog runs up and Tim goes, stop. The dog stops and he's like, leave. The dog puts his tail between his legs and it leaves. And then all of a sudden, all three of them look at me like, And I was like, there was a bear over here. I was stopping the bear. But in my mind, this was crazy. So when I watch Samson, and it's like a lion runs at him, and he tears it apart. The text says, like it's a goat, which I'm just being honest, I couldn't tear apart a goat. So I don't know why it says that, but he tears a lion apart, right? At that moment, there's a carcass laying on the ground. My gosh, the strength of Samson. Put chapter 14, verse 6 on the screen if you can. The strength of Samson, right? No. The Spirit of God rushed upon Samson. Chapter 14, verse 6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Samson, and that's the strength that enabled him to tear apart the lion. Again, there's 30 men that Samson strikes down because the Spirit of God rushed upon him. 
chapter 15, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson and he kills a thousand men that were there to kill him. He kills a thousand men, let's just stop for a minute, with donkey dentures. Literally, the jawbone of a donkey, he picks up and he kills a thousand men. Man, the strength of Samson. No, the spirit of the Lord. Now, I want to just slow down for a minute and say this again. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. God provides Samson with the strength to bring at down a whole building, a temple atop 3,000 Philistine people. Now, here's where things get a little dark. Previous to the pulling down of the temple, there's this woman that's trying to trick Samson. She's going, what's the source of your strength? What's the source of your strength? And he's playing a little game with her. So he's saying, it's this. And then she goes, the Philistines are coming. And she realizes it's not that. Then he, it's this. The Philistines are coming. It's not that. The Philistines are coming. It's not that. Then finally, he's like, the secret's in my hair. Now, we have these moments where we go, when you think of Samson, what do you think of? His hair. His, the strength was in his hair. Okay. I just want you to know something. At the very beginning, when the angel of the Lord tells his parents what to do, they say he will be a Nazarite. Don't cut his hair because a Nazarite is one who is fully dedicated to the Lord. So the hair, it's not like he had magic hair, folks. It represented he had fully submitted himself fully surrendered him so that he had been appointed, called. He had been delivered over by his parents to be fully dedicated to the Lord. But when Delilah says, what's the source of your strength? Never once does he say, God, the Lord. His hair is cut. The Philistines come in. He gets up in this very moment like he's going to take him on again. He's looking for something like donkey dentures. He gets up and they take him over and it says that he presumed that he'd be able to do it, but the Lord had left him. Every point where Samson was strong, it was the spirit of the Lord. It was God's power. The source of the strength is God's. This is very clear in Zechariah 4.6. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, everything that you hear, everything that you read, everything that's being told of you is be strong. And I'm telling you, it's not saying be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's saying you be strong. And if you're not strong, you're miserable, you're worthless, you're not worth it. When in reality, in our poverty, God distributes his strength. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk. 1 Corinthians 4 says, but in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. Here's the truth, folks. And this is going to get real. It's going to come into our neighborhood, if you will. The truth of the matter is many people think they're in the kingdom because of their talk, because of the songs that they sing, because of the buildings that they attend. 
C.S. Lewis had a quote in which he said, sitting in a church no more makes you a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power, which the prerequisite to the power is powerlessness, is weakness. And here's the truth. We quoted this passage already. The book of Hebrews is very clear, very, very clear that sin is deceitful, so deceitful that throughout all of history, there have been many people, and let's now just talk about the church, because here we're seeing it in Israel. They're doing wicked things at their hands, whom they're a people called by God. They're doing wicked things. But in the church, historically, sin has been so deceitful that we think we're okay. And the Bible says that this will be true. The book of Revelation is very clear. In chapters 2 and 3, there's this moment where Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2, Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. The lampstands very clearly represent the church. Then there's this scene where Jesus is speaking to a church, and he says these words that we use oftentimes to speak about evangelism. Famous words that probably many of you in here have heard before, and it's these words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody opens the door, I will come in and dine with them and they with me. Right? So we say it in evangelism. To all of you who do not believe, Jesus' offer is there. He's standing at the door and knock. Open the door of your life to him. He will come in and dine with you. You want to know the one problem with that, which I'm not saying the idea of that's untrue, but the passage isn't speaking to unbelievers. Who's it being written to? A church, which means they're inside preaching sermons about Jesus, singing songs, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And Jesus is on the outside knocking on the door going, hey, you're talking about me. Hey, you're singing about me. Maybe you should invite me in. He's knocking at the door of a church, which means, folks, there are churches throughout history, throughout our city, throughout our land, throughout the world that speak, talk about Jesus with no power. There are individuals sitting in this room and in every church that think I'm a Christian, I talk about him, I sing songs about him, I attend a church that in the end will stand before God and say, look at all the stuff I did in your name, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the problem with Israel. They abandoned God, but still used his name. They spoke with their mouth, their words, but their hearts were far from them. Well, what does it look like when our hearts are engaged? What does it look like when our hearts are engaged? We just stay in the Old Testament. It's very clear. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord desires of you. But to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. What we say is not necessarily what we believe, but what we truly believe affects how we behave. Tom has told this church that for 25 years almost. What we believe affects how we behave. Folks, what a culture believes affects the way it behaves. If you just saw in the last few days a few things, and this part of the message is so important for us to realize this. 
What a culture believes affects the way it behaves. Justice Scalia, I am making zero political statement here, okay, dies yesterday. The guy's body is not even cold, and people are making political decisions on Supreme Court appointments. Now, how dehumanizing is that? There was a guy I know that wrote a tweet yesterday, and he said, must be a terrible thing to have the kind of job that when you die, people dance on your grave and argue your replacement before you're even cold. So step back from it. What does that say about our culture? Because if the Ten Commandments, give me a raise, I'm going back to the quote I said earlier, is the ethos, the culture of the good neighborhood, and judges displays the culture of a bad neighborhood, folks, I'm telling you, the world we live in, no matter how comfortable you are, no matter how good the home is you live in or not, the culture we're living in right now is not a good neighborhood. It's not. Truth be told, it's not. And here's the problem, is that many people in the American church are totally like Samson, totally like Israel. God continues to do his thing because God will do his thing, but in the end, we're totally blind to our own false worship. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. We view the Bible, so many of us, through an American lens, just like they viewed their Bibles through a Canaanite lens. We're fine. And all of a sudden, there's this stuff that's screaming off the pages that we resist. This is not unknown to us. There are people that have wrote the best theology that has maybe ever existed, and it's true in talk, but the way they lived their lives was horrific. For instance, I'm reading Frederick Douglass right now, and Frederick Douglass has a quote that is really strong, and what I want you to see by this is how unbelievable deceived the church can be. He says this, we have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and for the good of souls. Now, we're reading the books of those people, and we should. But truth be told, folks, we lose generations, not because we didn't talk about it, but because we didn't live it. There was a point that struck me so hard reading the African Bible commentary on Titus chapter 2 when it said, when a generation speaks the truth, talks, but they don't have the power in their lives, they talk about it, the next generation will not question their lifestyle, they'll question their theology, their beliefs. So at some point, there's a reality of evil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And it all comes home to roost in the midst of this. But when we study these passages on why we're losing generations, and we sit there and go, they just don't want to believe it anymore, we at least better step up from the book of Judges, from Samson, from the history of the church, and go, what have we not lived into that we said we believed? Because this doesn't just have consequences on generations of which it does and we care about. It has eternal consequences. Not all who stand before me who say, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's true. So then the question begins to be, if God's power is there and we're denying his power, Paul talks about this, there'll be a form of godliness and we deny his power. What are those areas where it's true? We better ask ourselves questions about rampant individualism. Tom, who founded this congregation, said in one of the last election cycles to me, it's like the United States has become a place where we have as many special interest groups as we do individual people. 
we no longer have a vision that we are our brother's keeper. One of the fundamental first expressions of sin is Cain after he kills Abel looking at God going, am I my brother's keeper? Tom then said this, a candidate could not even run on the platform and gain traction by saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So we live in a day and age now where people be like, rubbish, that's foolishness. Folks, when we live in those times, it's not a good neighborhood. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. That's that statement. Everybody's their own special interest group. If we in the end aren't guided by the source of our strength, which is God and his word, catastrophic consequences come upon us. So how then do we access the means of God's strength? How do we access the means of God's strength, the means of God's power? We've got to recognize and not be presumptuous, but here in very simple forms that we see in these four chapters is that God's power is brought about by prayer and by providence. What are the means, prayer and providence? There are means, right? This is, I'm a father of four children, and sometimes when kids want things, they do the most insane things to get it. You're like, you honestly think that's going to get this for you? You know, I want fruit snacks. Before you can say anything, they're on the ground like, they're slamming their hands on the ground, and you're sitting there going, are we kidding right now? Like, I feel like I want to be Samson. Lord, rush upon me so I can rip them (laughs) apart like this Pardon me, I'm displaying my sinfulness, but truly, you feel that, right? So you breathe, Spirit of the Lord rush upon me so I can actually manifest the fruit of the Spirit at this moment. And so if, if I'm in the Spirit, then I sit down and I'll look at my children and go, do you honestly think screaming and yelling and kicking your legs and throwing them on the ground is the means to get you fruit snacks? Because there's nothing in that that makes me want to give you fruit snacks, Right? Maybe a fist, not fruit snacks. <laughs> there are means to getting fruit snacks. It's called politeness and asking. Dad, may I please have fruit snacks, right? And then I begin to channel Jesus, right? At that moment, what father does not want to give good gifts to his children, right? Um, just ask. This is all over the Bible. Church, all over the Bible, we have not because we ask not. And we must go, well, then why is it that we're not asking? Well, I'm convinced as Americans, many of us don't ask because we really, in the end, don't think we need anything. I kind of have everything I want. I got to get up and get going. But I don't have time to ask because I got to get up and get going to make sure I continue to have that stuff. Presuming, like Samson, that God will always be there. Never presuming that he may go, oh, you want to go your own way and your own strength? Go. And then all of a sudden, it's not there. Ask. Ask. This is very clear in this book that this happens over and over and over. Israel, throughout the book of Judges, cries not even to God and not even repentantly, and God answers. Think about the condescension and the love of God to go, I'm going to hear a disobedient people. They're not even crying to God. They're crying in their anguish, and he comes. Even at the beginning of this is the only section in all of Judges where they don't even cry out. They are so content in their sick circumstances. They don't even cry out, but God continues to move. We're just about to end with why that is. But then a woman, an angel of the Lord appears to this woman. She goes and tells her husband what the angel has said. And he's like, I got to see the angel again. So he prays and prays and prays, bring the angel back. And God brings the angel back. He asks, God gives it. Samson is about to die from being famished for a lack of water. He asks God and God opens a rock, a rock folks, a rock and water comes to him. 
At the end, Samson's blind with gouged out eyes. He asks, Sovereign Lord, if only one more time, give you your strength. And God gives him his strength. The means is prayer. Now stop. This is like Samson. Don't talk about strong Samson. Talk about strong God. Let's just for a minute. I get it. I get it. But at least check ourselves when we say the power of prayer. Prayer is not powerful. All kinds of people pray. God's powerful. We ask him. That's what makes prayer a means, is God's power. The prayer itself has no power. God does. That's why we ask him. It's like the sun. Are we rich? No, I'm rich. Here's the last thing. God's power is brought about by prayer and providence. Now, some of you have heard that word before, providence. But the reality in this sort of story that so clearly displays this is God doesn't come in response to obedience, though I think there's much of the Bible that shows God's present far more and does move in the midst of our obedience. But here, it's the exact opposite. God doesn't in response to obedience. At the beginning of this, he's not moving in response to prayer, though this very four chapters says he does. He's moving for a different reason. He's moving because fundamentally it's consistent with his own character. The God of the Bible, which is what makes him so different than any other God, regardless of the world's hellish actions, idolatrous actions, blasphemous, and by that I mean blasphemous, they're looking at the one true God going, away with you. You're not God by our lives and even our words. Blasphemous circumstances, God continues to pursue the world he made. Because fundamental to God's character, God is the Lord. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But the Lord, all throughout the Bible, what you see that's fundamental to his character is that he's a savior. This Lord is a savior. This is what creates such liberty for the Christian to go, I'm going to follow Jesus as Lord. And when all of that guilt heaps up in shame and you go, but I'm not even worthy, I'm going to fall. If the Lord that you seek to follow that's saying, follow me, if in the midst of your pursuit of him, you trip up in the midst of your own selfishness and sinfulness and fall, it's thank God at those moments we serve a Lord who saves. He doesn't let disobedience stop it. This is the statement of Jesus. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. No matter the circumstances, in fact, because of the horrific circumstances, God moves to display his grace and his glory. That's why it's not by works. That's why it's not because of anything we have done. It's not by works lest any man should boast. It's all in the midst of disease and distortion and sin and selfishness that God comes so that he would get all the credit. But in his fundamental character, because of providence, because of his plan, even when Samson's parents are like, don't go get a Philistine, and it's sin. But it says, but what they didn't understand is that God had a plan to get rid of the Philistines. What? You're using the mystic. His providence is so profound. And in fact, it's his commitment before the foundation of time. This is where we're going to end. This week... I had my attention drawn to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Sit in this for a minute. Revelation 13, verse 8 is when the world has gotten at its worst and every person, every single person follows the beast. 
Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. That's the beast. That's evil to the personified evil, Satan. And all who are on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name, except, here's what he's saying, except everyone whose name has not been written. So everyone who will worship the beast is everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. You want to talk providence for a minute. God's commitment to never stop, to save the world he made, to save the people whom he loves. This passage says that before the foundations of time, there was a book. The title of the book was The Lamb Who Was Slain, which means Jesus, before the foundation of the world, hear me on this, was crucified. He was slain. This is how much God loves. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. A lamb was slain. And inside of this book were the names of all of those who would ever repent and believe. If we're in here and we believe, our name was in there. Not by our own doing. Not by our own works. Because the lamb was slain and God's grace descended and came upon us. Folks, if you think God is not providentially committed to the full and entire restoration and reconciliation of the world in which he made, in which you and I have the opportunity, and don't for a minute think I'm ending with a message to say for all of you who are unbelievers out there, because this whole point of God's providence of continuing to come is coming to the people of God who proclaim his name but deny his power. This is a moment for all of us to pray, to repent, to turn back towards him, the God who so loves us that before the foundation of the time was slain, who so loves us that we could return to him and experience the abundant life he came to give. Let's pray. Father, we love you, praise you, and thank you for your grace and mercy. God, would you do something amazing in our culture and in our world and continue to move and to pursue. Let us not run away from our poverty. Let us confess our sinfulness. Let us trust your grace, your providence, and your provision. In Christ's name we pray, amen.